This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. Listen to what inspired the storyline, how their covers and titles were chosen, their personal connection to the story, and other fascinating tidbits about the authors themselves. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I can be found on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. And if you have any comments about the podcast or feedback for me, I can be reached at my website, which is www.thoughtsfromapage.com. Reese Bowen is the New York Times bestselling author of more than 40 novels, the winner of the Left Coast Crime Award for Best Historical Mystery Novel, and the Agatha Award for Best Historical Novel. Bowen's work has won 20 honors to date, including multiple Agatha, Anthony, and McCavity Awards. Her books have been translated into many languages, and she has fans all around the world. A transplanted Brit, Bowen divides her time between California and Arizona. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Reese. I am so glad you're here to speak with me today. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks, Cindy. A little bored, a little um, cabin fever, but apart from that, everything is good. Thank you. Well, I hear you on the cabin fever. It is definitely starting to take its toll, I think. Well, most years I would be in Europe researching the books and I would be traveling around and seeing family in in England. I would be in Cornwall, which is where my latest book is set. And not being there this year was really hard. And so it was kind of nice to have the book there to at least read and and get get back to the dreams of where I'd like to be. Well, and you were doing a tour through Cornwall on your Instagram account when the book first came out, correct? I was, yeah, every day looking at the pictures and going, oh, look. (laughs) I enjoyed following along with that. Well, why don't we get started and tell me a little bit about The Last Mrs. Summers. Okay, The Last Mrs. Summers. This is the 14th book in the Royal Spinist series, featuring my heroine, Lady Victoria, Georgiana, Charlotte, Eugenie. She's 35th in line to the throne of England. She's absolutely penniless. We're in the 1930s, and she's been trying for the last 14 books to make her own way in life. And by this time, she's a little bit more hopeful and settled than she had been at the beginning when she fled from the Scottish castle with nothing and had to live on toast and baked beans for a month. Um, But she's now happily married. She has inherited a really nice property. Well, at least she's looking after it for the owners and will inherit it someday. And everything is good in her life except her husband, Darcy, We don't know what he is, but we think he's some sort of spy for the British government. Anyway, he's disappeared. She's bored. And lo and behold, her best friend Belinda shows up out of the blue and says, darling, I've inherited my grandmother's estate and it includes a property in Cornwall. Let's go and look for it. So they zoom off together to Cornwall. The property is not at all like they expected. They meet someone that Belinda used to know as a child when she used to come to her grandmother in Cornwall. And but through them are taken to this big spooky house with lots of strange secrets and vibes and undercurrents. As you might have guessed, this whole book is really a a homage to Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. I won't say it was my favorite book. It was a book that changed my life when I was a teenager because until then I'd read Agatha Christie, I'd read Nio Marsh, and they were good puzzles and I enjoyed them and you skim through them very quickly. They don't stay with you. And then I read Rebecca, and this was the first time I realized that an author can play with a reader's emotions, can make a a reader believe something, and then in the middle of the book, 
punch them in the stomach and go, sorry, you got this wrong. And I thought that was so cool. I loved that. So this is what this book is. It's really, the house is very like Mandalay and Rebecca. And there is, uh, the young woman is the second wife. And the first wife has died in mysterious circumstances. There was a very creepy housekeeper who's modeled on Mrs. Danvers. Then sort of things go wrong, but each one with a twist on what Rebecca would be. So that it was fun to write because I was using Rebecca, but then I was, again, playing with your emotions, twisting it and saying, no, this isn't going to happen at all. So that was fun. Well, and I think the Gothic theme has definitely had a resurgence or a comeback in recent years. So that definitely is a popular type of book to write these days. Well, I think people love to be scared, but in a way that's very safe. I do too. I used to love reading people like Victoria Holt when I was young, that were young women running through strange castles being pursued by dubious men. That's kind of fun to read. (laughs) Did you have to do any research for this one? I had to do less than usual because I usually spend my summers or part of my summers in Cornwall with John's family. And my sister-in-law owns a 14th century manor house. They are a very, a very aristocratic Cornish family. So I will stay at a place that's very similar to the houses that I write about. I know the area very well. And so it was really a case of writing what I knew. When we were there last year, I'd just drive around and uh, see what you can see from here and check on the times of the ferry and that sort of thing. But there really wasn't nearly as much. The only real, real research I did was when I was in Cornwall, I found a first edition of Rebecca at a used bookshop. And so as we traveled around, I read it again. And it was interesting because I hadn't read it since I was a teenager. And I had different feelings about it this time. I was so angry with the young woman who's the heroine, whose first name we never know. She is the, she is the second Mrs. De Winter. So she has no identity, really. The only one who has the, the identity is Rebecca, the first wife. And this second one allows herself to be bullied by the housekeeper. And I thought, if that were me, I would say, well, I know the vase has always been over there, but I choose to have it here. But she never did. She was... Um, she was a little mouse. I mean, I understand she was lower class and she was suddenly thrust into this position of being mistress of a huge house, which must be intimidating, but she should have stood up for herself. So I think, you know, if Daphne du Maurier wa- wanted to re- write it again, that's what she should do. <laughs> well, and it was a different time period too. So I think women were less likely, not all women, but some women were a lot less likely to stick up for themselves than they are now. Yeah. Also, you know, she's married a much older man. She's presumably 20, 21 at the beginning of this book. And she's married someone who must be in his 40s. So it's a little bit more like a father-daughter relationship in many ways in that she looks up to him and she's rather awed, overawed by him because he's handsome, he's rich, he's everything she's dreamed of. And she really has a very humble background and has not had a place in life until now. So I can understand it, but I would have had some spunk. What do you hope your readers take away from this book? Well, I think if you read Rebecca first, you would really appreciate it a lot more because you'd see little tiny references to things that happened in Rebecca and you'd go, oh, yes, well, I remember that. Uh, That was one of the things that the names of things that are nearby. The houses in Cornwall are often prefaced with the letters T-R-E, which in the Celtic meant house. So instead of being Manderley, this is Trewoma. So 
I've twisted things around a bit. So I think people would get that. I think people will love uh, the chance to escape to Cornwall, especially now when we're stuck here, we can't travel. This gives you a great feel for what Cornwall is like, the Cornish coastline with the wild cliffs and the sort of bleak headlands with a lot of prehistory, a lot of Celtic prehistory. So standing stones in fields and things like that. Um, So I'd like people to feel, oh, yeah, this is what Cornwall is like. And the narrow roads where it's hard for the cars to pass each other. I always think of that with Cornwall, too. Oh, my God, that is a a major thing. You should see going to my sister-in-law's house, literally, you're driving down this little little lane and it's got either a hedge on one side or in some cases it's got a stone wall. So there's nowhere to go. So you're driving down this little lane and you come around a windy little bit and you meet a bus coming the other direction. It's quite frightening. So that's one thing. Whenever we're there, we always we have our hearts in our mouths when we drive. That's that's one thing that's very uniquely Cornish is those those lanes are so narrow. And the locals, like my sister-in-law, they know their way so well. They drive them all at 50 or 60. So there's us creeping around at 22 miles an hour and you come around a corner and someone's zooming towards you. It's It's quite, yeah, it's hair raising. For someone in my book like Belinda, who we found out very quickly is not the world's best driver, she's inherited a lot of money. She's just gone out and bought herself a lovely sports car, which is very powerful. She really isn't in control of it. And Georgie's sitting literally praying all the time, I think, as they go around these headlands and bends. With her eyes closed, right? She's covering her eyes as they go. <laughs> I don't want to see what's happening. <laughs> well, I love the covers for this series. I just think they are so clever and unique. How did all of that come about in the beginning? Well, they chose the first cover and the first illustrator. It was one of those very serendipitous things. They chose the illustrator for the first cover, and I had some suggestions on what I thought we should do on it. So then we got sort of a stereotype of Georgie. She appears on all the covers like that. She, In real life, I think she doesn't look quite like that. But anyway, that's how she's come to be. And then I found out, quite by chance, that someone emailed me and said, did you know that the illustrator lives in San Francisco? So he came to one of my events once, and I met him. He brought me the first sketch he'd ever done of Lady Georgie, which was lovely to have. So I've got it on my desk now. Since then, I've sort of risen in the world a bit. And so I get to say exactly what I want on my covers. They say to me, what would you like on the next one? And I say, well, I think we should have the the big creepy house with maybe just a hint of the housekeeper at the other end of the hall. And then they draw it for me. So and then. I really have complete input. They do a, a sketch to start with. And I can say sometimes like, I don't think that pillar's quite right. Or should we have a dark man standing in that corner? And so it's very nice to get exactly what you want. Because I know so many people who go crazy because their covers are not what they want. I do think the cover process is really stressful for people. And so it is nice that you've gotten to the point where you have complete control and can speak up if you like it or don't like it. Yeah. And then, you know, I do I do big standalones as well. And my standalone covers also, we talk about what we might want on it. And then they they send me a lot of mock-ups and a lot of pictures and everything. And I say, yeah, I like the look of that, but I'd like it lighter and everything. So I, it's very nice to have the cover you completely want. The cover on my next standalone, which is coming out next year, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon, is the best cover I have ever seen on any book. If you saw this book across an airport, you would rush and buy it because it's so gorgeous. Well, you've led me right into my next question, which is, (laughs) are you working on anything right now? Is that cover out already? Is it, or has it not been revealed yet? 
it has been revealed. It's now, you can see it on Amazon. The book is not coming out until next April. It's called The Venice Sketchbook. And obviously it's set mainly in Venice in, in different time periods. It's set in 1928, in 1939 to 46, and then again in 2001. And so it's one of those stories where... I, what I started doing this with the Tuscan child, where we jump between two people's stories. They're fulfilled side by side as we go along. I wanted to do that. I thought it'd be a great challenge. And I love reading books like that. So this is another of those. And you've got a woman in the present, well, almost the present, because the Twin Towers falling has something to do with the story. But then you're taken back into Venice to try and find out what had happened when you'd never known. So that's the sort of story that I I love reading. So I, I really liked writing. And the cover has this most beautiful shot of Venice you've ever seen. I'm a huge fan of Venice. I go off. And, and the funny thing was they, they put it up on Amazon for pre-order as soon as the cover is ready. And so suddenly one day I look up and I go, oh, this book is number seven on the bestseller list, but I haven't even written it yet. So... <laughs> Oh, that's like, Wait a minute. <laughs> the pressure. That's a bit shocking sometimes. Like, well, I, best, I guess I better finish it now. So yeah, it's coming out April the 13th, I believe. Well, now I'm going to have to go check the cover out. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Well, I remember the first time I heard you speak about one of these standalones and you talked about writing a dual timeline versus a, a story set in one time period and that it was a little more complicated than you had initially thought it would be. So now you're doing three time periods. How was that? Well, it wasn't that hard because one time period is almost like a prologue. Something happens at the very beginning of the book in 1928, which colors the story throughout the whole book. So just think of it as it was like a, a 50 page prologue is what it essentially is. I mean, I don't call it that. The funny thing was when I wrote The Tuscan Child, which was the other one like this, I wrote the two stories separately and then I had to put them together. I had no idea how to do that. So what I did was I printed out both stories and then I put the chapters all the way down. I've got a long hallway at home, all the way down the hallway. And then I, of, of one of them, probably Hugo, and then I came with the Joanna chapters and I thought, where do I put this? So I literally physically put them all in where I thought they should go. And the, the good thing about that was I could move them around like, oh, yeah, we don't need to know that yet. Let's move it down to here. So that's what I did for this one, too. I think it's, it's, it's I'm sure it's not the most scientific way of doing this, but it works really well for me because it's so visual. Well, I loved that story the first time I heard it. I just thought that was fascinating and such an interesting way to do it. Well, it was survival mode, I think. I've got these two two different stories. I didn't want to have to try and copy and paste and then have to move it out again. It would have been such a headache. So this was quite quick. So I, I recommend it to any writer who's going to be doing two time periods. It works quite well. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors talking about recommending that? But generally, if somebody hasn't published a book, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, you know, I speak at writers' conferences and writers' workshops quite a lot. And this is a question I'm often asked. The first thing I would say to anybody is don't ever choose something to write about because you think it will be a bestseller, especially if you see that vampires are in right now. So you decide you're going to write a vampire novel and make lots of money. That doesn't work because by the time your book comes out, which will be at least two years later, vampires won't be in anymore. The other thing is you've got to love what you're doing. If you're not passionate about that story, 
the reader's not going to be passionate about that story. I have to tell you, every book I write, I can't wait to get back to it because it's something that I love. I love being in Venice. I love being in Cornwall. It's just a treat for me to be with those characters again. So you've got to really love it. So it's hard now, I think, to be a new writer. Don't be discouraged. You have to, all you have to do, you only have one job, and that's to sit that sit down and write the very best book of which you're capable. And once you've done that, you've done your job, and then it's up to the fates to try and find you an agent and an editor. The other thing that I hear regularly regarding that is to go ahead and sit down and write. And whether your initial draft is the greatest thing ever, it probably isn't going to be. So the best thing to do is sit down and write. And then once you've got something down, you can edit. And that helps you kind of work your way toward the best thing that you could write. That is so true, Cindy. That's absolutely good advice. And that's exactly what I do. I write two books a year. So I'm working pretty hard, as you can imagine, especially as one of those books is around 400 pages. So what I do is I start to write the first draft and I work all the way through till I finish that first draft. And I try and do that in three months because then I know I'll have plenty of time for editing and polishing, etc. I find I've had to learn that if you, you think, oh, this bit's a bit boring, you do it. You just keep on with it. And then you can go back afterwards and then you start to really edit, pull apart, polish. But once you've got something down, I can then switch off a bit. I find when I'm in that initial creating mode, it's very hard to switch off. I will drive around in the car thinking, okay, she comes into the room, so what does she see first? Oh, she sees that. So I do that, and then at night I wake up, I turn over, and I sit up and go, oh, no, he wouldn't have said that, and I have to leap out of bed and write something. So it's very hard to switch off. And I find also people ask me, too, you're writing different books. Do you do two at the same time? The answer is I couldn't possibly do that because I'm living in one place. I'm living in one environment, in one character's head, to the point that I've been before, I've been writing a book that's set in the middle of winter. And actually, at my house, it's 94. And I go and get a sweater, because I'm feeling cold. And, uh, and the other thing, too, is especially when I'm writing the Molly Murphy books, Molly gets angry with the love of her life, Daniel, and he's done something that's really annoying to her. You know, he's very much a man of his times who likes to boss women around. And so I come upstairs and John comes into the kitchen and I snap his head off and he looks at me like, what's the matter with you? What did I do? And I go, oh, sorry. No, I'm not angry with you. It's, it's Molly who's angry with Daniel. And then I can go back downstairs again. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, to I'm totally involved in that first draft. And then after that, I can step back a bit and I can be a critical editor who goes through it. It works very well for me. I do think just being able to get something on the piece of paper, or actually these days, really the computer, gets you started. And then as you continue working, you can even go back and think, oh, I should have put this here, or maybe she would do this here. And at least that kind of gets you going. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, there are so many people who think that they want to write, but they spend so much time thinking about writing. They will take another course, another fine arts course, another this course, and that really writing is not an art form, it's a craft. And you only get better at it when you actually use your medium, which is words. Uh, the moment you learn to create with words, you get better every time you do it. And I, I find that my books goes much more smoothly at the first draft now, because I've done it so many times that I'm pretty good at handling the words these days. Well, thinking about Georgie, when you started this series and you wrote book number one, did you ever dream that you would be now on book, is this 15? It is, yeah, 15. And you would be on book 15? 
I hoped so. It was interesting because this, the series really came about by accident. I was writing the Molly Murphy books, and I'd been writing a series with a, a Welsh police constable, a current-day Welsh police constable called Constable Evans. And my editor kept saying to me, we can't really break you out unless you write as a big, dark standalone. And I kept thinking of, you know, what on earth could that be? A child molesters, serial killers. And I thought, I don't want to spend six months in darkness like that. And so I thought, I really dug my heels in. And I thought, okay, I'll show her what's the most ridiculous sleuth I could possibly come up with. How about if she's royal, but she's penniless? And it's the wonderful 1930s, you know, poised between two world wars. And you've got strange things. You've got the Great Depression, yet you've got people who are so rich. And you've got communism and fascism and the rise of Hitler and Mrs. Simpson and the Prince of Wales and all that wonderful stuff. So I sat down and I just started to write in the first person in Georgie's voice. And the interesting thing is that that really stream of consciousness first chapter was completely unchanged in the first book. It was just exactly as I'd written it. So my, my agent loved it. We sent it off to the editor who looked at it and said, no, 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 this wasn't what we wanted at all. <laughs> so my agent said, well, you don't mind if we send it out to other publishers then. So it was put out to bids. Somebody else bought it. And then it started doing very well. And so the first publisher to start with pretended it didn't exist. And then they started saying, well, in um, that other series, so it was it was very nice. It was a very pat on the back moment for me. I really enjoyed it. So Georgie, to start with, has this great story arc because she is alone and penniless. And what's she going to do with her life? It is the Great Depression. Even people with really good qualifications can't get jobs. And Georgie has been to a finishing school. She can walk around with a book on her head. She knows where to seat a bishop at a dinner table. And she knows which fork you use to eat oysters. You know, that's about all she knows. So she's not employable. So for the first few books, she's really struggling to survive on her own, not willing to go back to the Scottish castle and admit she's a failure. And then, of course, she meets Darcy, who becomes the love of her life and is a really on again, off again, dare I trust him sort of relationship that goes on with them until finally he pops the question and they get married and now she's a happily married woman. So we'll have to see where the series goes from here. I want to take it long enough. Georgie's mother, her current man in her life, is a rich German industrialist. And I kind of want her to be stuck in Berlin when things get really bad and maybe have Georgie have to go and rescue her. That would be a fun story to write about. That would be a fun story to read about also. I love Georgie. She's just so funny and often unintentionally funny, but she's just a great main character. Well, I think she starts off the series anyway, very naive, very sheltered. She's grown up in a Scottish castle without too much interaction with other people. So she's naive. She is optimistic. She wants, she expects good from people. I think one of the things that's made her a good sleuth is that she's grown up slightly straddled between two worlds because her father was Queen Victoria's grandson, but her mother was a lowly born actress, very famous actress who he married. So she has a grandfather who lives in this little house with gnomes in the front garden. So she really is slightly between two worlds. And so when that happens to you, you're a really good observer. I think that's what's happened to me in America. I've lived in America for many years. I still really cling to my British roots in many ways. But both places, I'm slightly an outsider, slightly an observer. This is very true when I go back to England. 
I stay with my in-laws and they say things which I probably wouldn't even notice if I lived in England. But being an outsider, they say, oh, do you remember that trick we played on the butler once? And I get out my little notebook and write it all down because to me, it's great stuff for my books. And do they mind that, that some of their stories end up in your books? I'm not sure. I have to tell you that one of John's cousins is called Fig. Oh, (laughs) I don't think I knew that. Okay, that's hilarious. I hope she doesn't know that either. I don't think she's not that much of a reader, I don't think, but it was such a fabulous, she's an annoying person and it was such a fabulous name, I had to use it. So I think she probably doesn't like it too much, but never mind. Well, and that's funny. So it must fit her personality well because of the the way Fig is drawn in your books. Yeah, Fig Fig in my books has got much more awful, but the the original Fig was a little bit a little a little bit annoying. <laughs> well, okay, I'm so happy to have learned that. That's pretty <laughs> funny. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read recently that you really liked. Well, I don't know about anybody else this year, but I found it really hard to read since we've had the pandemic and the election looming and everything. It's just like so much of my brain is being taken up with worrying. And also I've had to finish the Venice sketchbook to a deadline. So I was working hard on that. I find it hard to read fiction when I'm writing because I tend to pick up someone else's style. So to start with, at the beginning of this pandemic, I went back and read a lot of old favorites. I read I read, went through The Lord of the Rings again. I went through The Chronicles of Narnia again. I went through several older mysteries, older Agatha Christie's and things that I've enjoyed. But then I found some books I have enjoyed. My first one I really loved this year, which is great for this situation, was called Paris is Always a Good Idea. And it's by Jen McKinley. It's one of those lovely rom-coms when she uh, she's a sort of career woman who's been focused on her career for so long and suddenly her world is sort of shaken upside down and she takes time off and she goes back to visit people in Europe and she'd taken a gap year after college and she'd had a a romance with a young man in Ireland, another young man in Paris and another young man in Italy and she goes back to sort of see if she can rekindle any of those. So it's a lovely, fun, very light story that's perfect for when you're stressed So that's Paris is Always a Good Idea by Jen McKinley. The other one I read, I was asked to blurb and really loved it. It's um, by Barbara O'Neill called The Lost Girls of Devon. Again, that's one with various heroines in different time periods, all coming together, three generations in a little house in Devon and something happening. Something's happened in the past. And as you fill, fill out the details of the story, everybody's world is sort of put to rights as you go along. That's the sort of story I love, and it's very well done. I think both the books you pick sound like they would be great reads for right now, good distractions and not heavy, because I haven't really been able to read anything very dark at all. I think that's why why historical is so popular right now, because it's, it's safe to read about a time we know is over. It's happened and it's gone, and you can't change anything about it. So it feels comforting in a way to read historical, because you know what the ending will be. That's a good point. I hadn't even really thought about that, but I think you're exactly right. Well, I can't thank you enough, Reese, for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I had so much fun talking with you. Well, me too, Cindy. It was it's, it's lovely to chat. I mean, this has been one of the benefits of this uh, pandemic, I think, is that we've got to chat with people all over the world, which we wouldn't have done before. And uh, instead of just going to one bookstore and meeting 60 people, sometimes I'm doing a Zoom with 2000 people all over the world. And and that's a great thing to do. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for facilitating it. 
Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Reese's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.